Hello, everybody, and welcome to All of the Above, the podcast where we couldn't decide whether we wanted to um, share stories, discuss theology, talk about books we've read. So we're just going to do All of the Above. Um, I'm joined today um, by our consultant from the Great White North, the one, the only Bryce Harrison. How are you doing, Bryce? Good. Always, uh, always a good day when I get to be on the All of the Above podcast. And, and, and we love having you, whether it's to discuss fast food or, or the deep things of theology or um, Narnia, like we are doing today. I'm pretty sure the fast food episode we did got more feedback than just about any other episode of all of the above that's happened, which shows where people's real priorities lie. Right. I can't, I can confirm that, that we've gotten the most feedback from that episode than, than any other that, that we've published. So maybe tune in next year, April Fool's Day, we may have to uh, revisit the topic. Sounds good. Well, this this week, um, one of the things that that we, if you've been around the podcast for a while, um, you've probably heard multiple episodes on um, or multiple mentions of C.S. Lewis um, and the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, We love it, um, unapologetically so. Um, and one of the things that, um, Bryce actually brought this book to me and I thought it would be great to do a podcast on it, um, because it it ties, um, two of our great passions, discipleship and the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, so what, what better way than to discuss, um, a book on both of those things. So today we're going to be taking a look at the book called live like a Narnian, um, Christian discipleship in Lewis's Chronicles, um, by Joe Rigney. so Bryce, since you uh, were the first to read the book and bring it to us, tell us a little bit about it. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I can't I can't really um, hide my love for C.S. Lewis since I now have a child named after him. Um, so that that betrays me a little bit. Uh, but if I remember correctly, I think Sarah Gilliam also admitted having named a child after a character from The Giver. Uh, when she was when we did that podcast together too so I just had to follow in her illustrious footsteps Um, but yeah this this book was really helpful Um, I I appreciate Joe Rigney Um, he's a a professor and Little League baseball coach and a Lewis scholar Um, and so I've read a number of articles that he's done um, that have been, have been really, really helpful. Um, and, and this book has been one of my favorites. Uh, he Rigney just tries to, uh, introduce us or I mean, those who have already been introduced to the world of Narnia, um, how, how kind of leaning into it and spending time in the, the world that Lewis created helps us to, to better follow Jesus here in ours. That's great. So before we, before we dive into the book, I did want to ask um, a hard hitting question. Okay. As it comes to the the world of Narnia. Okay. And I know we've discussed it. And I know your wife in particular is very passionate about. Oh, okay. To this question. Um, so there is debate on how the order the order with in which you should read the Chronicles of Narnia. Yeah. No contest. No real debate. So so what what is the answer? You read them, read them in the order that he wrote them the first time, not in chronological order. If you want to read them in chronological order later, you can go back and do that. But 
reading them in order of publication in the order he wrote them is the right way to do it. I, I would, I would agree. Um, I, before I met you, I probably would have said, read them in chronological order. Yeah. Um, the but problem is I then you, you start, you start with magician's nephew and the book starts by the book mentions another story having happened with four children and like that, those things are mentioned in uh, the magician's nephew and you have no clue what it's referring to. If you read it as book one, because it's supposed to be book six. So, you know, I trust C.S. Lewis enough to read it in the order he wanted. <laughs> That's fair. I do think I do think there's value in reading it in chronological order, but I do think if if you're experiencing Narnia for the first time, starting with Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, a hundred percent start with the Wardrobe. Hundred percent the way to go. So now that we have that out of the way, I uh, thought you were going to ask me like what character I'd be from Narnia. You asked me the softball question. Yeah, you know, just <laughs> just getting us started. Um, so now that we've got that out of the way what um diving into the book um the big topic is christian discipleship and I, I think in a lot of circles when we think of christian discipleship we don't think of works of fiction um we think of being discipled through um scripture um through the word through mentors and peers um is it and this is kind of where Rigney starts his book. I think it's I think it's a helpful place to start. How how do we kind of marry the the two ideas of, of fiction and discipleship? Or can you can you be discipled by a work of fiction? Yeah, I think I think that you 100% can. I think that was really kind of the ethos of a lot of what what Lewis did and what Lewis wrote. Um, when Rigney kind of opens, uh, he he gives kind of a helpful word to the reader uh, that even this book is for friend, the like for friends of Narnia for those who have read the Chronicles and familiar with the Chronicles, uh, and that even his his thoughts in here are there. He says its usefulness is in direct proportion to one's familiarity with the Chronicles, um, and so be, because what he is, I think, what Rigney's hoping for. Uh, is that those those thoughts that will stir us, those things that will uh, kind of steal our hearts and like provoke in us a love, ultimately a love for the kingdom and a love for Christ, are not the necessarily what he's pointing out, but the stories themselves, um, the words that that Lewis wrote, the way that that Narnia feels um, like those are the things that are going to kind of cultivate in us a love for the kingdom. I think because of, of that belief uh, that you just mentioned that uh, even, even works of fiction, even storytelling, uh, even in a fictional world can disciple us and can create something in us uh, because of how uh, deeply rooted the truth of the gospel is because of how deep, deep, deep the the roots of the kingdom run, um, if they really do run throughout all of all of reality, if God really did uh, make this creation, if He holds everything in existence, um, then everything, uh, in in one way or another, um, declares that work uh, and points towards His kingdom. Lewis actually makes this point in. 
um, in the screw tape letters where screw tape says, uh, says to Wormwood, like anything dealing with reality, like anything that's, that deals with stuff that's real is the enemy's territory or is, is God's territory. Um, because because it that because it's it's solid it was made by god it was it was created by him um and so anything that deals with truth really belongs to the lord absolutely i thought it and and rigney kind of addresses that in the very beginning where he talks about um lewis kind of dismissing the idea that he had some master plan in this to to write a gospel account for children um he said lewis himself writes Everything began with images, a fawn carrying an umbrella, a queen on a sledge, a magnificent lion. At first, there wasn't anything Christian about them. That element pushed itself in of its own accord. Um, it was part of the bubbling. Um, he talks about this, this bubbling through, through the stories he's trying to tell, this bubbling through of these gospel images. Um, so it's something that wasn't in, intentional, but just purely based on the fact that of storytelling and and in god's good world these things kind of bubbled bubbled through to the surface yeah i think you could say um i think you see this really clearly i I think you see this in narnia i think you see this in in tolkien's middle earth um i think good stories like really good stories um if you are good because they're true like are good because there's an element of truth in them um and if you almost think about kind of like um the story is like a tent and there are tent posts being driven into the ground, um, like into the ground of truth. And as they're driven kind of deep into the ground and rooted in what's true, they are striking veins of gold that run through the ground, veins of the kingdom um, that run through all that's true. And so the deeper you delve into truth, the more likely are you are to strike uh, gold deposits of the richness of the kingdom that runs throughout everything that's true. Absolutely. And if you're interested in hearing more about this, we did a couple of podcasts <laughs> uh, a while back on, on literature and we dove into Lord of the Rings and a couple other episodes. So if you're interested in, in diving a little bit deeper into those, I uh, highly recommend you go back and check them out. Um, so specifically as it relates to, to Rigney, he, he, the net the the next chapters he kind of progresses into okay how do what is what are these truths that are kind of bubbling to the surface in in the narnian world um, yeah or, or through narnia um and he goes through like some 17 of them um and they're all wonderful um and they're all beautiful but we really just wanted to pull out like four or five that i that, that we thought were were especially helpful or poignant um so what what was one of those for for you Bryce? Yeah, so the first um I mean I would say the first kind of has to do with uh this idea that he gives of um learning to breathe Narnian air, which I think is exactly what we're talking about is learning to be discipled even by wor- wor- um works of fiction, learning how to kind of strike those gold deposits in the earth. Um but but what's really helpful what two things he points out that are really helpful as kind of a why, a why to like learn how to do that well is the first is that he, um, so 
Lewis in his work, Abolition of Man, um, talks about the culture as creating men without chests. Um, and the point of the analogy is that um, like men are being created without the necessary organs, but then asked to still perform the function that those organs are meant to do. So imagine um, a person created with a without a heart who's still then asked to be kind. Um, and so um, Rigney says what the Chronicles do is actually kind of the opposite of what Lewis accuses culture of in the abolition of man is that they help create men with chests. They help kind of uh, create men, women, boys, and girls and cultivate in them uh, the necessary organs to then perform the function of what it means to to work and to live and to, to enjoy God's world. And so um, breathing Narnian air kind of like expands our lung capacity, creates in us a chest that's then able to, to go do and to go live in the, the way that we're supposed to as people of the kingdom. Um, and the other reason that he says this is really important, this actually comes from a letter that was, was written by Lewis himself. Uh, Lewis says that uh, he, he often um, found it difficult at times uh, to, to feel the way that he knew that he should feel about, about Jesus and his kingdom and his work. And he wanted to have a, a love and a devotion for God and an excitement about Christ. He says, why did, why did one find it so hard to feel as one was told one ought to feel about God or about the sufferings of Christ? Um, I thought the chief reason was that one was told one ought to. An obligation can freeze feelings. Um, and then he goes on to say, like, how am I going to get around those freezed feelings? Like, how am I get, how I'm going to cultivate in myself an, an excitement and a love for what the Lord is doing? Um, and he says that uh, suppose casting all of these things, all these truths of the kingdom into an imaginary world, one could make them for the first time appeal in their appear in their real potency. Could one not thus steal past the watchful dragons? Mm -hmm. I thought one could. Um, and that's just, I think, to me, really helpful um, that as we come to the Chronicles, we're not coming to them as a, a substitute for the gospel, but instead we are sneaking past the sleeping dragon of our heart to find a, a love and a fascination for the gospel and for the kingdom uh, in unexpected ways. That's beautiful. I love that. Um, yeah. What a, so he, he dives into a couple specific ones that he mentions, but he also kind of leaves it open-ended. Um, so what were, what were some of your favorite things that he kind of pulled out of the Narnian air. Yeah, that's great. So one, he, he mentions uh, the, one of the first chapters is the witch's war on joy um, and kind of contrasts the, the witch's war against joy and her, the fact that in her world, it is always winter, but never Christmas because she is just um, kind of like rigorously uh, uh banishing all all things joyous contrast that to, to aslan who's who is portrayed as the the lord of the feast um and i think this this is a reminder to us that that is the king that we worship that jesus is the one who was 
anointed with the oil of gladness beyond his companions, um, and that we really do serve and worship the the king of the feast. Um, the flip on the flip side, the the witch uh, who who represents the um, the evil one the the accuser the one who stands in opposition to the to the kingdom of god she feeds edmund two meals she gives him enchanted candy and stale bread Uh, and rigney points out like that that evil opposition to the kingdom is both the root of gluttony and asceticism that it's both the one that feeds enchanted candy and encourages like gorging and um and like selfishly desiring more and more and more. Um, but then it also is kind of the root of asceticism that only provides its people with, with stale bread and water. Um, on the flip side, like you see the, the true Narnians, um, deeply enjoying meager meals and then, um, celebrating with lavish feasts. So it's not just the, the size of the meal or the, uh, richness of the food, but meals both big and small for the true Narnians, for those who are in the kingdom are are rich and hearty because their king is one who is who is joyful. Um, and that reminds me of uh, um, one of my favorite quotes has is from Chesterton. GK Chesterton said that it, when he looks at the ministry of Jesus, it feels like there's some kind of great hidden secret just beneath the surface, like something that Jesus didn't quite reveal in all its fullness. Cause if he had the present age, wasn't quite ready for it. And it would have just like washed everything away. Some kind of like turbulent storm just beneath the surface that was immensely powerful. Um, and that he fancies that it is actually Christ's mirth, mm-hmm. that his his joy and his mirth and his gladness is that thing that set him apart that was um yeah, that was that was kind of uh unconquerable in Jesus was his his deep abiding joy in the kingdom. And I think we see that really teased out well in the Chronicles. Absolutely. I, th- I, I really in- enjoyed that section. It has the making Mary like it matters. Um, and, and he, he says it, like breathing, like breathing this, the Narnian air awakens a desire for a particular type of meal, one with tasty food, good conversation, lots of joy and laughter and revelry and strategizing about how to defeat the white witch. Um, I really, I really like what he said. It makes me want to live so that those with shriveled hearts and icy minds accuse me of self-indulgence and waste. It also makes me want to live so the accusations are false. Yeah. And which is what we see. We see Jesus accused of in the gospels, right? Yeah. As the Pharisees uh, are either accuse him for uh, drink, eating and drinking too heartily. Um, And yeah, exactly. And I think I think that that ties over to one of one of my favorite ones that that pulled out that really stood out to me was you were talking about King Loon, um, in um, Horse and His Boy, which is one like I was not my particular favorite um, of the the books growing up, but it is it has become one of my favorite, um, almost particularly for this quote. Um, I remember listening to it um, 
a couple years ago and this like smacked me in the face but um he talks about king loon and seeing what it means to be a king um for this is what it and he says for this is what it means to be a king to be the first in every desperate attack and last in every desperate retreat and when there's hunger in the land as there must be now and then in bad years to wear finer clothes and laugh louder over a scantier meal than any man in your land mm. um this idea of what it, what it means to be a King, but ultimately what it means to be Christian. Yeah. Um, and I just, this, this mirth and joy, um, but also a, a, a great seriousness. Um, I, I think is, I think is incredible. Yeah. King Loon is, is described as the jolliest fat apple cheeked twinkling eyed King that you could imagine. That's how I want to um, be described. And not like, not a, not a shallow joy either. Like he, he lost a son. He like he lost a son in in his in its infancy, um, and so like he's known tragedy and he's known sorrow, and yet like you described that like that is what it means to be a king, um, to laugh louder over a scantier meal than any man in your kingdom. Um, and I think you said it really well. Like that's also what it means to be a Christian. To that's what it means to live as if the kingdom of God has come. Uh, cause Jesus tells us the kingdom of God is at hand. Um, and we are to pray for the kingdom of God to come, um, for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I think that's a lot of what that, what that means is to live as if the kingdom of God is true, as if the kingdom of God has come, because that's exactly what we see in the life and ministry of Jesus. Um, so Jesus's ministry acted out God's rule and reign overall things. Um, he was, uh, if you look at Jesus's miracles as he kind of displays mastery over sickness and over death and calming the sea and kind of the natural order and dominance over the supernatural order as he casts out demons, as he, um, multiplies loaves and fishes and feeds multitudes. Uh, it seems as if like every miracle of Jesus is demonstrating that God is uh, ruling and reigning over every genre of life. Like there's no corner of the world that he doesn't have mastery over. Um, even, even, and, and so Jesus' ministry is kind of playing out. What does it look like for the kingdom of God to come kind of playing out the gospel of story, even from the time when he's an infant and Joseph and Mary flee to Egypt so that God can say out of Egypt, I have called my son. And he, he acts out the, the journey of Israel. Um, and in, in a lot of ways, I think we are called to, to be like Christ in that way, to do the same thing for our life, to reflect the story of the kingdom and the truths of the kingdom. Um, Shakespeare said, all the world is a stage and we are but players. And I think there's some truth to that, that, that the world is a stage for the Christian, for the church um, to be players acting out the story of what the gospel looks like, of what the kingdom looks like. Um, and, and I think we see in King Loon a really good, a really compelling picture of what it does look like. Absolutely. That's the, he's, he has been one of my favorite characters in recent um read throughs so one of one of the other things i thought was super helpful that rigney kind of discussed more towards the beginning was um kind of the pushback you hear from a lot of fairy tales is that it deals with magic and um witchcraft like what the main villain is the white witch 
Um, and there's this um, condemnation of this idea of magic. Um, what, what, how does Rigney kind of pull that out? And what are your, what are your thoughts as it relates to that? Idea? Yeah. So that's, that's one of the things that I think is, um, is probably the most helpful or one of the, one of the things that's most helpful in Lewis's writings. Um, I think Lewis allows us like allows rigorous intellectualism to mingle with wonderment, mm-hmm. um, like gives us license for magic to exist and magic in the sense that like God's ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. And there is so much of the world and the universe and who, like God has revealed himself to us but there's so much unseen about God as well. Like there's a, there's a richness that we will, we could never plumb its depths. Um, And there is, so there's great mystery surrounding God and the world that he's created. And I think it's that, I think it's that mystery that fuels both scientific discovery, but also a fascination and a wonderment with with the unknown with and with kind of the unseen. Um, and so I think like, that's, that's good for us. Um, Lou, uh, Lewis said the only words that ever satisfied me as describing nature are the terms used in the fairy books, charm, spell, and enchantment. They express the arbitrariness of the fact and its mystery. A tree grows fruit because it is a magic tree. Water runs downhill because it is bewitched. Um, And so like, it's good to study trees and figure out how they produce fruit, but it is also good to sit back and kind of wonder as we see this tree that year after year produces fruit Um, and like a water running downhill, like, please explain to me how gravity works. (laughs) Like, I mean, sure, gravity works. And in theory, I think we understand how gravity works. Um, But isn't gravity also kind of magical? Mm -hmm. Like there's invisible strings tied to the planets that keep them spinning in orbit. Um, I Like if I'm trying to explain that to my five-year-old, um, like there's a little bit of magic in that and, and not magic in again, not in the kind of light and airy sense, but in the sense that there is a, a deep magic, that there's a God over the universe that we know intimately and yet is so other and transcendent that we can't quite know fully. And he has created things that are wonderful that we should stand in awe of. And so we should study them. We should um, try to understand and explain God's world. We should study gravity and we should come up with mathematical equations and theories for calculating gravity and figuring out how to put rocket ships in space. But at the same time, we should also sit back and watch a stream that runs downhill and imagine as if it's bewitched. Um, and what else kind of pulls that water over rocks and around boulders kind of uh, trickling down downhill, if not for for some bit of magic, for some kind of unseen hand of the Lord that holds all things in existence. And I think I think stories like 
the Chronicles of Narnia, like you were talking about earlier, kind of sneak sneaking past those dragons. Like it's very easy to fall into a intellectualism or to lose to lose that wonder um, for for the things that, that that God has created and the things that God has done. And I think reading and spending time in in story in, in worlds like Narnia kind of reawaken that wonder um, within us. And I think yeah, or even think- if it's even if it's not an intellectualism, like even if it's just a reductionism, mm. like even if it's just kind of reducing everything that like is true to things that I can see and touch and feel and understand. Cause at some point, like we're going to wrestle with the truths of the gospel. Mm. And at some point we're going to wrestle with who God is. Um, and if we have reduced our understanding of what's true to what I can see and touch and feel, um, then we're going to find ourselves in a, in a crisis. Um, but there is a faith, there is, there's an element of faith that, that desires to like see and touch and feel and know. And at the same time also, um, like heads out into the into the unknown and and wonders and marvels at the things that that god is that we that we can't quite handle um and so i think that's why like we are both heads and hearts um and we want to cultivate people with heads and hearts and there's going to be times when the heart leads the head and the other way around um and so i think kind of holding those two things in tension is is really important and, and not reducing truth to just the things that I can, um, that I can kind of verify with my own five senses. That's beautiful. Um, so were there, was there any other, um, things that Rigney drew out that particularly stood out to you, uh, kind of throughout the rest of his book? Um, there's one, I, I can't remember if there's a, if there's a plate, if it's in the book in particular, but one that has, that has always jumped out at me. And I think this is one of the things I appreciate about about Rigney is um, that he says like, Hey, the things that I'm pointing out are not, that doesn't exhaust the whole list of things for you to find in the Chronicles, like go find them for yourselves. And hopefully when you read this book, you don't say, Oh, I've never seen that before. Let me go hunt for it. Um, But hopefully as you read this, it's going to like resonate with things that you've already seen and felt as you've been reading them. Um, And I think one that has always resonated with me is there is a passage in the silver chair where Jill is standing at the edge of a stream um, wanting to drink from it and the lion is standing next to the stream and she asks the lion to go away because she's dying of thirst Um, and he he stands unmovable and he won't he won't leave the stream Um, and Jill says okay well um, if I come near to drink do you promise that you won't do anything to me and the lion says i make no such promise um and she she's trying to kind of like feel out is the lion safe um can i come near to the lion and be unaffected and obviously like she's thinking about being eaten um and so she she's asking kind of that question to see if she can draw near without fear of getting eaten And the lion really gives her no assurance of that. Like he says, I have swallowed men and women and children and kingdoms whole. Um, And she's like, oh dear, Um, I guess I, I guess I can't come get a drink of water. And he says, if you don't, like you're going to die. 
And she's like, well, I'm just gonna have to go find another stream. And the lion tells her that there is no other stream. Hmm. And I think that is, I don't think we appreciate that facet of who, uh, like who Christ is and how the kingdom works enough. The fact that there is no other life-giving stream. Um, and that we want to draw near to Jesus with all the assurances that he will prop up our, our already held presuppositions and that he will um, allow kind of like all our comforts to stay in place. But the reality is that that our king has swallowed up entire nations and empires um, and he does not bend to anyone um, but we, we bend to the kingdom. Like we are shaped by him. Um, and that is good. Like if, if the king is good, then that is good. If the king is wicked or even if he's just okay, then that is, um, then that is like terrible evil news. But the, if the king is perfectly good, if the lion is perfectly true and just, um, then it is the best news in the world that when we come near to him, he remains um, unchanged uh, and we are shaped accordingly. Amen. Man. And, and, and like he says towards the end of like the end of the book, like these are by no means um, exhausting the depths of how we can be discipled by the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, So um, and, and this this podcast by no means <laughs> exhausts the ways that you can be discipled by the Chronicles of Narnia. So our hope is that this is an invitation for you to, if if you have not read them, um, go to the library, purchase them. Uh, it's a it's a it's a worthy investment um, for sure. Um, but if you if you have not experienced um, Narnia. Um, we, we beckon you through the wardrobe. Um, but if you, if you have, um, and if it was, if it was years ago, or even if it was just a couple months ago, um, like we, we invite you to, to revisit because not only do we think they're, they're good and true and worthy stories, um, but we think there, we think there's a lot to be learned from them. And take someone else with you. Absolutely. Be Lucy, find your way through the wardrobe and then come back to get your brothers and sisters. Absolutely. Um, well, I've really enjoyed um, this conversation, Bryce. Um, I appreciate you uh, coming on. Um, again, the name, of the, the name of the book is Live Like a Narnian, um, Christian Discipleship in Lewis's, or Christian Discipleship in Lewis's Chronicles um, by Joe Rigney. Um, so highly recommend reading it. More so recommend diving into the chronicles of narnia um bryce you have any final thoughts if you like the book also go check out joe rigney's article on coaching little league baseball and making it fun again because it's also uh, a home run pun intended <laughs> that's awesome well, also i'm pretty sure joe rigney and i could be friends like baseball narnia I that, check, that checks all the boxes yeah like i I would like to find out that he's like my long lost uncle or something and just go hang out with him. If he likes the Ravens, it'd be a match yeah. made in heaven. That's true. Well, thank you guys for listening. Um, if you have any questions um, about um, today's podcast or, or anything else, um, check out our website, ridgewoodgreer.com. Um, We'd love to hear from you, uh, get feedback or even ideas for, for future podcasts. Um, 
we we truly do mean what we say when we want to talk about um, all of the above. Um, so Bryce, thanks for joining us, and we look forward. Thanks to, for having me. We look forward to talking with you again soon. Sounds great.